Everybody okay? Is anybody in here not a sinner? Yeah, that's right. Anybody here not a sinner? Saved by grace. Even though you're saved by grace, does that mean that you're you're not a sinner? What does it mean when the the Bible says uh, (coughs) in Romans 6 that we're dead to sin? Does having a new nature mean that we have less of a capacity to do what's wrong? We have a choice. Do we still have the urge? Even with the choice? Well, uh, let's pray, and I want to get into something here. Father, thank you for your goodness, and thank you for your love and mercy. Thank you for your power and your presence, and thank you, Lord God, for the redemption that we have in Jesus. Thank you for his mercy that washes over us and covers us. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for who you are. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I I raise that because, you know, and you've heard me say this here probably a number of times, there are some very interesting views about the ability of Christians to sin uh, that's out there. one of the things, one of the views is that um, sin in the life of a believer is just a matter of wrong programming, wrong messages that we hear. And uh, some of you are smiling, you're saying, that sounds crazy, and I happen to agree with you that, by the way. But on the other hand, I mean, there are, there, there, there are people who really believe that. Um, and I, I want to be fair here. There, there are, there's, there's an emphasis, and I'll name it. Uh, some people, not everybody, some, because I, I find myself drawn to this, some pieces of this view. Some who, are, who promote the exchanged life. Uh, conclude that, and they base it on Romans 6 and Galatians 2.20, that the moment we trust Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, everything old about us has been crucified and put to death. So, if I apply that new identity to who I really am, then I am less likely to sin. And really, even the propensity to sin has been taken care of because I'm in Christ. Now, that view has a lot of problems with it. What are some of the problems with that view? Kind of handicaps. 
It's not a handicapped transportation. That's like almost instantaneous and like to me it's better than instead of the driver of direction kind of yeah. chipping away at the old self. Yeah. Yeah, I, I like that expression, handicapped sanctification. Yeah, that yeah, okay. You were gonna say something? Okay, so let me press that a little bit. I agree with what you're saying, but let me press. Let me say what they would say to that. They would say, they would say, yeah, that, yeah, fine. We, we, but, but the growing in maturity has to do with not believing the old programming, the old way of thinking. That's that's the way that they would explain it. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm agreeing with you with that, but see, I, 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 yeah, yeah. I've got a friend that he made that argument. I'm yeah, yeah, exactly. That's what they say. But you know, probably I don't know how many. I mean, it's like I don't know how many affairs this dude has. It's like, dude, like you're 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 blinded by something. Yeah, well, see, and then the problem that they that I've heard them say that I'm not a sinner, and yet Paul said that I'm the chief. Sinners, and he used the present tense. That gives them heartburn. See, now you make these statements, then you got to then you got to come back and, and sort of like do do a little verbal gymnastics to say, well, he really didn't mean that. He was kind of going, or they cannot handle the last chapter, last paragraph of Romans seven, when it says, he says, "O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death?" But what they say, well, he's talking about before he came to Christ. I said, no, he didn't read Romans 6, 7, and 8. He's talking about the current struggle. Yeah. The problem with the whole teaching, we have, we have to die daily. Yes. Daily process. And if we, could, if we could have done it on our own, even after the cross, I mean, when we talked about it the other week, Christ died once and for all for all sin, and now the wrath of, the wrath of God is Yeah, 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 yeah. How, how would they explain away that, that there's no discernible difference in the behavior between Christians and non-Christians? Yeah. And, you know, known statistics. Well, yeah, and I, I, I'm agreeing with you, but what they would say, the way, the, the way they say that is because you're believing old programming. If you would only choose to believe your new identity, then you wouldn't, wouldn't be, but, but see, one of them, I had a conversation, and this sounds humorous, but it really wasn't funny, I mean, when I thought about it, so I'm, I'm this is years, a number of years back, this, I had breakfast with this guy, and he was, uh, uh, he was kind of concerned about my teaching from the book of Romans, when I get to Romans 6, 7, and 8, and this was years ago, when I did the series on Romans here, he was very concerned about that, because, you know, my position is that Romans 6, 7, and 8 is, is one whole. And you you got to be careful uh, that you have to read that in its entirety to hear. You know, Paul is masterful. Sometimes he'll he'll raise a straw man, and you got 
you gotta, you got to follow that out. He does that in 1 Corinthians 15 where he says it's about the resurrection. That this didn't take place. That didn't take place. You've got to read him out and you've got to read his context. So I, I made the conclusion. I said, um, I said yeah, no, no, you know, that, that, that there, there is, whether you want to call it nature or flesh or whatever, there is permanent capacity. Permanent capacity in us has nothing to do with thinking has to do with permanent capacity. And uh, then James 1 uh, talks about we're tempted when we're drawn away by our own what? It wasn't just thinking. He's talking about something that's there. Okay? And, and so, so he, he goes to me, well, you know, I, I just need to explain it this way. He said, some time ago, uh, it's, it's a programming we have some time ago, uh, uh, my teenage son and I got, and, and early Sunday morning, we got into this discussion and heated argument and this kind of thing, and he wasn't listening. He got very disrespectful to, to me, and, and all of a sudden, I, I just punched him. And so <laughs> then he had nerve to say, he goes, I punched him, and I was feeling guilty and bad about that. And then the Lord reminded me, that wasn't me. I didn't do that. I said, well, who the heck hit your son? Casper the Friendly Ghost? I mean, you see how, you know, you, you got to do kind of like, come on, man. I mean, you know. Uh, yeah. Yes. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. Explain, this is great, explain antinomianism because I think it has its roots in that. Yeah. yeah. It was back in antiquity, there were those who felt like, you know, they separated the spirit from the flesh. And this gave them the license to sin, and it didn't affect their spiritual standing because they separated the spirit and the flesh. You could probably say yes. Yeah, yeah, and, 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 but that's the root of it is, and it's just repackaged that way. A lot of these current teachings have their roots in, uh, I would say, I don't want to be too strong, uh, in old era or in what I would call partial truths. For example, I am, there are many, there are some who are part of the exchange life movement. Their theology is great, and I would agree with them that here's where I would agree that uh, you consider yourselves to be dead indeed to sin. That's right. You don't have to continue in sin. We can overcome sin, and we do that by the life of Christ. Uh, that is our position in him, and that, that the sin has been taken care of. And I would agree with that. That is the common ground. However, when they take it to the extreme, they say that my position is my reality. That's not true. That's not true. Your position is not your reality. It, 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 it's what, who you are in Christ, but right now, down here, we groan and we struggle and we have things that we have to overcome and we've got to deal with and we tap into that identity. One of the greatest little books, oh, I just forgot the title. Mm, I hate it. Um, Stephen Olford wrote a wonderful little, oh yeah, the book is called Not I But Christ. It's on Galatians 2.20. He wrote a masterful little book, one of the best balanced insights into this, this whole issue. 
particularly, he, he goes to Romans 6 and he says, the controversy there is that, okay, if, 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 we, if we're dead to sin and we're to reckon ourselves, that's the King James, uh, if we're to reckon ourselves to be dead indeed to sin but alive to righteousness, but we still sin, what does that mean? And his insight is absolutely wonderful because I actually think Paul is speaking, and when he and when and, and then when he, um, my brain works faster than my mouth. Uh, and then when he's over in Galatians two twenty, he says, "I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live; yet not I, but Christ." What does he mean by that? Alford points out masterfully that Paul is in his mind, both in Romans six and in Galatians two is talking about uh, uh, using the imagery of Roman crucifixion. Do you know when the Romans recorded you as dead, the, the, when, when you were crucified, do you know when they recorded you as having died? Not at the, not at the moment of expiration, but at the moment of crucifixion. You were as good as dead. That's it. That's a great line. You were as good as dead, okay? But there was still life in you. And so what he's saying is that you've been, yes, you have been crucified with Christ. You are as good as dead. But in this body, you struggle to apply that reality. That's the tension. So you don't have to lie about, you know, or, or excuse this or this kind of thing. And that tension also, you know, the other extreme is not true either. I, you know, people use that as, well, you know, we're all sin and I'm growing in grace and this kind of thing. Well, you keep lying to your boss and screwing up and this kind of thing. You're a screw up, man. And stop using that as some stupid excuse. There's the power of the Spirit. There's the Word of God. There's your position in Jesus Get up off your lazy behind and deal with your stuff. I wouldn't say that Sunday, but we brothers here, we got to be direct, okay? I mean, some of us just need to talk to people that way. Stop it. Get the help that you need. You don't have to keep being addicted to this stuff. There is help for you, and there is the power of the gospel. And that's where, see the tensions, that's where we need to be. Longer than... Yeah. He's telling you yeah. Where you should live. Yeah, but you 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 just but see this is this is another argument. I you didn't mean to say this, but what I'm see if if in fact if in fact we did not have the propensity or the nature to sin, why would we need the Holy Spirit? Why would we need him to create Christ-like characteristics in us? Why would we need him to overcome? And again, this is the reason why I say the argument of the exchange life stuff falls apart because Paul raises a problem in Romans 6, underscores the dilemma in Romans 7, and gives us the solution, the Spirit of God, in Romans 8. Romans 8. It is a spirit that helps us to apply that crucified life that was mentioned in Romans 6. But if we didn't have the propensity to sin, why would we need the Spirit? You know, a lot of people, I, I, I realize when I left where I was almost 10 years, like one of the things that was 
Yeah. Well, it's, and you know, Francis Chan's wonderful book, and you guys need to get this and put it in your library, wonderful little book called The Forgotten God. I think the title is, is, is appropriate. I think we get so busy in helping people, giving them tips on how to do, be a better Christian that we forget about the power to deliver a transformed life. And so we're left with willpower, you know, you got to do these five things, do these four things, do these seven things, make sure you do these nine things, and by all means, do these two things, and you'll get better. Yeah, God wants us to get better, but God wants us to experience transforming power, not just to get better. Yeah. Yeah, Absolutely. Yeah, and we're going to get into this in a second, but um, God wants us to have, gentlemen, hear me on this. God wants us to have a holy disdain and impatience with sin. A holy disdain and impatience with sin. Yeah, and once you see the severity of sin... It creates in us an urgency for righteousness. We're not urgent to be righteous. That's right, because, because we're complacent with sin. It's greater than that. Even as noble as that is, bringing people, it, yes, it, but... but yeah, the, the, the point of it is, and this is, you know, no, 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 this is wonderful. Because your observation, this is the reason why I'm, I don't typically use labels here, but this pushes me toward the reform side of the ledger. And the reason why this pushes me toward the reform side of the ledger is because all of life is about the glory of God. All of life is about the glory of God. And it, it, it's not, even the Great Commission is about the glory of God. It's not about making disciples who make disciples. That vision is not big enough. What God is doing in human history and the reason why he created us is so that mankind would tell the truth about who he is. And the image of God is stamped on us so that that image, which reflects his glory, would be seen in everything that we do and say. So it's just not a matter of being holy. It's a matter of my life telling the truth about who God is, i.e., his glory. And so we overcome sin because sin, sin is a betrayal of the nature of our great God. Think about that. Anything that betrays who God is has to be removed from our lives because we were created in his image. What is that image? We were created to reflect during our moment in history who God is. That's right. Yeah, yeah. Well, 
Yeah. Agreed, but this comes back to the whole I'm not a sinner anymore conversation. Because there's a left and a right wing to that. But when you, when you get into, um, like, I think if we start listening to things that we say and other people say around us, there's more of an embrace of the flawed lens around sin. And, and, and we, we say it today as, well, I'm still a good person or such and such. We're just good person and we become dismissive. And we don't have this utter disdain for the sin that's driving yeah. yeah, But his point, your point is well taken, though. Your question is also a statement. I do think our natural default mode is complacency. That's our natural default mode. Um, and we're going to get into this in a second. We're going to hustle here. But, but see... Uh, we underestimate the pervasive, sanitized nature of sin. We underestimate uh, how sin uh, anesthetizes, if I could use that expression, our, 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 our will and our desire to please God. Sin is so categorically pervasive we, we don't appreciate the incredible, amazing impact of sin on everything. Paul says the creation groans. The environment, our thinking, you know, prone to wander, Lord, I, the proneness to wander is in all of us, and that's not taken care of by our salvation. That's the reason why Paul said, you got to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who's at work in you. you got to focus on God. And, 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 and sin, sin wears many disguises. One of them is false righteousness and the, cons and the idea that I can just incrementalize my growth and development. So your question is well taken. Yeah, let, let's, let's hustle. Yeah. That's right. And there's a warfare that's going on. I don't care how, how godly you are. Yes, on your, on, yeah, it's a warfare that's going on. I mean, I, I, just to be honest, vulnerable with you, I could, there are times in which I have preached here and sensed the Spirit's presence, sensed His anointing, sensed, and my mind is just there. And I get in my car and the most awful thought will come, boom, and you go, where did that come from? So, you know, we don't live in heaven and board down here. Yeah, yes. <laughs> yeah we're all related. Hey, let's pass this stuff out here. Yeah. I was uh, watching yesterday John Piper uh, uh -huh. preaching about war on sin. 
Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. So wide awake, Jack. <laughs> Lurking, yeah. All right, well, I, we're going to hustle here. Um, I, I think, though, you know, this has been a very important discussion because I just wanted to set the framework. Sometimes we think because we're saved, we're not affected by sin. You can, you can just put the rest of them back over there. And by the way, um, Driscoll and Bashir's in their one volume on doctrine. Uh, this, they, the section there on uh, man and sin is is just really, really excellent, really, really excellent. Um, and uh, you know, this this has been greatly influenced by this. Well, let's just take a look at a high flyby. Uh, if Jesus is the theme of the Bible, and he is, then sin is the issue of the Bible, and it is. Jesus is a, is a solution in the Bible. Sin is the issue in the Bible. You've just heard what the whole Bible is about. <coughs> sin is the issue. Jesus is the solution. And that's what all of life is about, isn't it? <laughs> Bottom line is that all of life is about struggle with sin, and the solution is Jesus. So the answer is always Jesus. The fall. Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. Somebody read that real quickly, out loud. Genesis 3, 1 through 7. Right, right, right. But those people that promote that uh, change life, how do they, I don't see how they, Jesus was the only sinless person ever. Yes. Well, yeah, exactly. Well, you, 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 yeah, I have the same dilemma. I think that, that that's true. You know, you just set yourself up uh, with all kinds of issues. This sounds cruel, and I don't mean it to sound cruel, but what proponents of the exchange life always have to be careful of is that unwittingly they set themselves up for denial and dishonesty. And we know that the, the scriptures never deal with dishonesty and denial. They set themselves up for that, uh, you know, and, and ironically, those who promote the exchange life to the extreme because of that, they, they accommodate sin in their own lives. Because the denial of its existence is exactly what the enemy wants. So you can't say that if you believe, if you're promoting this, you know, you can't say that your attitude toward your wife is sinful. 
you, you, can't, you can't fully embrace. Uh, no, 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 really. Uh, you, you weren't appreciating God's creation. You lusted at that woman. It just set you up. It sets you up to be a spiritual Pharisee. But you can't, you can't, you can't, embra- you can't embrace that reality. And the, and the Bible says the best disinfectant for sin is always the light. It's always transparency. And uh, so, I mean, I, th- these, are just, these are just issues. And I'm not busting on anybody because some, uh, there's some great folks who, who would identify with the exchange life and I would identify with them. Interestingly enough, Stephen Olford would. But Olford is balanced. He wouldn't identify with that excessive stuff. Uh, uh, Robertson McQuilkin, one of my mentors, he's with, with the Lord right now. Uh, he would identify with that, but he would not be down that bridge of sinless perfection and, and you've just been reprogrammed. They wouldn't deny that. But what they strongly emphasize is our identity and our identification with Jesus. And I think that is true. Um, so, um, okay, let's, let's, somebody read Genesis 3, 1 through 7. That's King James, New King James. Nothing like the King Jimmy. Love it. Language. Let's just make a few observations. We're going to fly through here a bit. Um, Based on Genesis 3, 1 through 7, 1, Satan tempted Eve to mistrust God's word. That's where it all started. Don't trust what God has to say. Boy, I can go down the path with that one. Um, And then Satan accused God of being a liar. (laughs) It's like, (laughs) do you ever feel like cussing at the devil? I mean, what, you know, (laughs) who are you talking to, man? Accuse God of being a liar. Then the third bullet point is, by, by believing Satan over God, Eve chose pride over humility. Pride is always the source of sin. Her sin was disloyalty to God. And the assumption is, yeah, yeah, you're right. I can choose who I want to listen to. God, guess what? It ain't your turn today. 
She chose pride over humility. Adam, now here's the deal. Start this one. Adam was silent. He committed the sin of omission, which is just as damnable as the sin of commission. Passivity is just as destructive as intentional evil behavior. Don't ever forget that. To say nothing when you should have said something, to do nothing when you should have done something. That's right, you're, you're, you're just as culpable, if not more so, I would argue, than the one who commits a sin. And by the way, I don't want to make too much of this, but you know, the passivity of Adam says something about our own inclination as men to be passive. And uh, sometimes I think when I get to heaven, one of the first thing the first thing I'm going to do is praise Jesus. The next thing is I'm going to find Adam and slap him. <laughs> hey man, you screwed me up for all these years. You let a snake talk your wife into what were you thinking? You know. All right. Here's the nature of sin in the Old Testament. And by the way, I say this all the time, we do these doctrines. What you're hearing right now is a summary of what you would get probably in a six-week course in seminary. So uh, in the Old Testament, high flyby, how, does, how is sin portrayed? Well, first, it is a relational breach. It is a relational breach. Genesis chapter 2 and 3. Um, and secondly, and I, I use this intentionally, it is the vandalization of peace. That's Genesis chapters 4 through 11. Peace has been vandalized. Sin is disruptive. Thirdly, uh, it's rebellion against God and his authority. Exodus chapters 32 through 34. It's an illustration. Where there's sin, there's rebellion. It's transgression that results in guilt and punishment. Sin is defilement and filth. Leviticus 19, 21. Now, I know we make jokes about reading Leviticus and how hard it is to read that book, and you got all this stuff and all this blood and this kind of thing. But I'll tell you, yeah, it is true, and you have to kind of like force yourself to get through it. But what will help you is God goes to extraordinary lengths in Leviticus to underscore, the picture there is that he's underscoring the absolute filthy, nasty, awful nature of sin. It is a stain that just won't go away. And that's how you have to read Leviticus. Sin includes shame and disgrace. Back to Genesis 3. It's 
the reason why they cover themselves. Includes shame and disgrace. Um, Sid is portrayed in Deuteronomy 9, 4 through 8, and 18, 24 through 28 as an accumulating burden passed on from one generation to the next. The impact of generational sin, the word burden is a good word. You just dump that weight on the next generation. You guys, I want to plead with you. Take care of your mess. Don't make your children pay for your bad choices. Don't do that. Nobody ever sins alone. The imperfections in our lives, the stuff that we accommodate, don't make your children pay for that. My mother said something to me uh, years ago. I'll never forget this. I was, she, my mother, um, you know, she had her fault. She, you know, but she was one of the, she was a sweet, merciful, grace-filled lady. I never heard my mother um, negatively talk about anybody. I mean, it's unbelievable. Now, Pop, he had a few insights about people, but, you know. <laughs> yeah, he's like you. But I never heard her. And I asked her one time, this was years ago, I asked her, Mom, come on now. Do you ever, like, you know, wanted to just go off on people and say, I mean, she... she you know, she wasn't she wasn't passive, but let I me mean, just just talk. She, and she said this to me, kind of put me in my place. She said, "Son," she said, "Boy, let me tell you something. I never wanted to start any mess that my children had to pay for. I never forgot that. I mean, that was like I was probably in my mid twenties when I asked her that. I never forgot that. I said, "Whoa, yeah." So I want to encourage us here. Fellas, take care of your stuff, okay? Let me just please take care of your stuff. You don't, you don't, you don't, you don't, you don't want that stuff to spill over. And there ain't no such thing as private sin, okay? And no such thing, none. We can think it's private, but there's no such thing. All right. What's that? That's right. That's right. That's right. Um, it is deadly and it leads to death. That's Genesis three seventeen through nineteen. In the New Testament, now I'm gonna give I'm gonna give you give you four Greek words. Um, you know, not I mean, but but they they're they're four words. Uh, the the dominant word is is the first word, um, but these are four Greek words in the New Testament that relate to kind of like a different aspect of sin. With regard to its nature, the first word is hamartia, H-A-M-A-R-T-I-A, which is sort of a transliteration, really. H-A-M-A-R-T-I-A, and it means wrongdoing or missing the mark. Missing the target. Yeah, that's hamartia, 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 yeah, you always... 
Yeah, there, there, there are three other Greek words I'm going to use. And usually uh, in Greek, if you have four syllables, the, the emphasis is on the third syllable. That, that's, but you don't, that, that ain't worth much. But uh, The second word is paraptoma, P-A-R-A-P-T-O-M-A. And that means to trespass, crossing the line. Those two are probably the two dominant words in the New Testament translated for sin. P-A-R-A-P-T-O-M-A, to trespass or cross the line. The next one is parabasis. P-A-R-A-basis, B-A-S-I-S. And that means disobedience and transgression. I always have a hard time pronouncing this last one. It is A-S-E-B-E-I-A-S. A-S-E-B-E-I-A-S. Asabias or asabias. Uh, it means ungodliness and godlessness. And actually, those four words give you a real good composite picture of the nature uh, of sin in the New Testament. Now, um, I want to say something about the origin of sin, and, and I don't have a lot to say about it, uh, because the origin of sin, I mean, bottom line, this is a mystery. We've touched on this here before. It's a mystery. And uh, as an old friend of mine once said to me, he said, Crawford, don't try to unscrew the inscrutable. <laughs> you know. Um, where did sin come from? Where did the sinful response come from? We know that sin originated, and I say this guardedly, in the very presence of God. Satan, Lucifer. Uh, he was the anointed cherub that covereth. Somehow, some way, as you look at the text in Isaiah and Ezekiel, somehow, some way, Pride was struck in his heart. But where did the pride come from? We don't know. And so I'd encourage all of us that this is mystery. It is not, God doesn't give us an explanation for us, for it in terms of its origin. He explains its impact. But he doesn't give us an explanation with regard to the origin of evil, the origin of sin. Now we know, relatively speaking, the origin of sin in human nature was Adam and Eve's fall. But where did the desire to sin come from? That's, that's the mystery. That's the mystery. 
And I would encourage us, don't try to explain stuff that you don't have a foundation upon which to explain. You'll end up in error and your speculation, uh, you know, speculation is just that, it's just speculation. And I think as Christians, to be honest, we just have to say, in terms of the ultimate source of sin, we have no idea. We, we, we just have no idea. We know what happened. We see its effects. And we know what Adam and Eve did. Now, having said that, there's four essential truths. One is that God is fully and continually all-powerful. All-powerful. God is fully and continually all-powerful. There's no oops with God. Sin did not surprise him. Sin was not sanctioned by God. I'm going to say something here. But it is used by God to express his holiness and purposes. Not sanctioned by him. And be careful to say, you know, careful to say that, you know, uh, somehow or another, uh, this missed God. It didn't know. You can't say that because once you say that, you can create a whole bunch of other problems about God's omniscient, his omniscience and his omnipotence and all of that stuff. So it didn't surprise him. So God is fully and continually uh, all-powerful. The, the, the second essential truth is that there is no evil in God whatsoever. We ain't talking about the dark side of the force here, okay? There's no evil in them whatsoever. Um, the third one is that no matter where sin comes from, we are fully responsible for our sin. We can't blame shift. We can't put it on somebody else. We're fully responsible for it. You know, there's none of this, I didn't know. Yeah, but... Somebody else made me do this. You know, my mother didn't change my diaper right away, so I'm, I have issues. No, we're fully responsible for our sin. Number four, temptation comes from within. As we have probably over-communicated, we like to sin. What did I say? Sin is not sanctioned by God, but God uses sin to express his holiness and advances his, advance his purposes. Now, Romans 8.28 is, is micro and macro. There's nothing God can't use to advance his purposes. Nothing. The old cliche, he takes our message, our messes and turns them into his message. You know, makes perfume out of our farts. Now, I can't say that on Sunday. <laughs> you know, you know some, there's sometimes there's so many wonderful things I want to say Sunday morning. I just kind of like, <laughs> but then I see the emails. Come on, no. 
get it back over here. <laughs> uh, that's why I love talking to dudes, man, because, you know, you can sort of like, you know. Yeah, no, their freedom might be my imprisonment, though. It's just like, <laughs> like hey, man, I don't, want, I don't want the backwash from that. But I'm free. I'm not. <laughs> no, no, man. I ain't afraid to be fired, but I want to be fired over principle, not over foolishness. So, Okay, depravity. What do we mean by depravity? Huh? Is that true? Is depravity an experience or a condition? Yeah. Yeah. It's a condition. It's a condition. That's the reason why Pride and all that stuff is so stupid and ridiculous. You know, it's kind of like miniature horses arguing over who's the tallest. <laughs> We're just all messed up. When you look at pride and you look at yourself, you know, you know how stupid we look. How stupid we look. Compared to God and compared to his standard. And we're boasting about stuff. We're all miniature horses. That's right, man. This is, yeah, that's it. Miniature horses, jackasses, or whatever you might want to say. That's another Sunday morning retrievable statement. Okay. Now I want to. I want to just. There are four. There are three kind of things I want to say about depravity. Um, I'm going to give you the first one, which is not my position, and there's some who hold this position. That is that we are utterly depraved. What does, utter, what, what does that refer to? When you say we're, you're, we're utterly depraved. One of the great misconceptions about Depravity, uh, when, when, when you say there's a difference between being utterly depraved and totally depraved, okay? Utterly depraved means that there is no relative goodness in any of us. Is that true? That's not true. That's not true. There is relative goodness in just about everybody. The operative word is relative goodness. And so you be careful. Words matter. Don't use the term, like the expression utterly, utterly suggests that there's no relative goodness in any of us. Okay? So we're utterly depraved. No, that's not true. And I, the, the explanation out here on the side... We're not as evil as we could be, okay? That's the correction to the other. We're not as evil as we could be. Now, here is, here's the balanced one. This is my view. I, I do embrace total depravity. We're not utterly depraved, but we are totally depraved. Well, what's the difference? Well, here's the difference. 
Everything about us is affected, stained, and marred by sin. You can't argue against that. I mean, I suppose you could. But everything about us is affected, stained, and marred by sin. Thus, if I would put it in parentheses here, uh, total depravity does not mean that there's not any goodness in us, but the goodness that's in us is not good enough to measure up to the standard of God. So when you hear somebody that says uh, that, that it's, you know, uh, like the first point of five-point Calvinism, you know, or even total depravity, don't hear that as saying that there's no goodness in man. No, what they're saying by that is that sin has affected and stained and marred everything about humanity. So then, therefore, the relative goodness that is in all of us is not good enough to measure up to God's standard. And that's what we mean by total depravity. That's an important consideration. Because I think sometimes, now some of the reform camp, they're excessive and they deserve a few hits, but uh, sometimes they get a bad hit on this one, which is not fair. Because it, the, we are depraved. And this gets back to our whole discussions. So this ought to affect even our view of sanctification. To embrace our total depravity is to embrace our neediness and dependence and reliance upon the Spirit of God to help us. We can't, we can't move, move beyond that. The other expression is we are pervasively depraved. And I, I would agree with that, too. I think that's a subset, an implication of total depravity. We're pervasively depraved, meaning that sin runs through every part of our Constitution. Meaning it is pervasive. In its effect and in its impact. Now, having said that, this, our three enemies, which is our current reality, I would put brackets around that. Um, this is what we have to constantly watch out for. First is the world. By world, we mean the organized system in rebellion against God. 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 through 16. Here, here, I mean, he says, love not, love not, love not, love not, love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. First, don't love it. Don't love it. Interestingly enough, he didn't say don't enjoy some of the things that are in the world. He's talking about attachment to the world system. Don't be attached to it. Don't let it control you. And worldliness is insidious. Um, 
second bullet point here is don't let it shape our values. Be not conformed to this world, Romans 12, 2 says. Don't let it shape your values. Christians are notoriously lazy thinkers. Notoriously lazy. Uh, we see this probably the, the greatest... The greatest manifestation of worldliness in evangelical circles these days has to do with our political posturing. That is the greatest manifestation of worldliness. I think our passions have gotten out of control. And we cannot distinguish holiness, righteousness, and godliness We've accommodated God's moral standards and accepted, accepted and accommodated because of trade-offs, political parties on the right and the left that don't reflect the values of God. And I think we've lost our prophetic integrity. And once you get overly associated with any system in society, of necessity you've prostituted the value of the cross. And what the, what the culture needs is not people who salute the Democratic Party or who salute Donald Trump. What the culture needs, what the culture needs is a pure standard of righteousness and a church that reflects the values of the kingdom and not the systems of the world so that the systems of the world will know what it looks like to be a follower of Christ and not to be, com not to be compromised. Uh, please forgive me of that. But I think when you talk about worldliness, we want to talk about it in our own personal lives and not see how, how the courting of power and the courting of prominence is a damnable, devastating manifestation of worldliness. So, yeah, 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 I mean, you're, you, you're, you're actually saying some stuff that demands like a three-hour conversation, man, because that, that, yeah. I, I'm, what I'm saying here, please don't hear me as I'm not bashing any political party or this kind of thing. What I'm saying is that don't, don't, give away, don't give away the nobility of righteousness and holiness to get a slice of power. You hear what I'm saying? That's fool's gold. That's fool's go. I love what John Piper said about this current past election, by the way, and I will go there with this. I love what he said. I love what he said. Uh, they were coming after him pretty hot, hot and heavy because he did not support Donald Trump, 
and he would not support Hillary Clinton. And the argument was, well, you know, uh, one represents a lot of what we want to see, and by the way, there's no perfect candidates, and, you know, we don't need a pastor to be president, and this kind of thing, and think of Supreme Court justices, and all these other things, and the laws of the and, and that has some valid arguments there, and I'm not going there with that. But Piper responded, and, it, and they said, and by the way, as a citizen of the United States, it is your right and responsibility as a Christian citizen to vote. And Piper said, where do you find that in the Bible? When given the choice between lesser evils, and he, you know, he's quoting Spurgeon, he says, choose neither. And that somehow or another, somebody, rather than being associated with that, we need to call the entire country back to a higher standard. Now, he wasn't suggesting boycotting the election, the election, election process and all of that. But what he was saying was, and I'm not off script here, by the way, what he was saying was, what he was saying was, don't get ambushed by the world. Don't let them give you the agenda and let them determine you what is distinctively, determine what is distinctively Christian. No. This, this determines what is distinctively Christian. And whatever price we have to pay to maintain that level of integrity and godliness, you pay that price. But you don't sell your soul for breath mint. Um, okay. Yeah, yeah. It's just so I'm, I'm sorry, man, but I just, I'm sleep deprived. I, Finished the book last night. Praise God. I was writing this book, and I'm finished with it. And the publisher might say, no, you ain't, but at any rate. <laughs> yeah, that's the one we might need marriage counseling. We just wrote a book on marriage, and we just. Gentlemen, if God leads you to write a book with your wife, spend 40 days in prayer and fasting before you do it. I'm just saying. Yeah, I ain't doing that again for a while. Uh, live as crucified to the world. That doesn't mean you withdraw from society, by the way. It means that you don't expect something dead to give you life. Did you hear what I just said? You don't expect something dead to give you life. You give life to that which is dead. We're salt and light to the world. The world should not be salt and light to us. They're the ones who need to be preserved. We're not the ones who need to be contaminated. Okay. Uh, the world, the flesh, the flesh is the seed of corruption that lingers in us. Whatever you want to call it. I mean, I, I mean the Bible calls it the flesh. Uh, then we make all of the, well, the difference between the flesh and, and, and the nature, old nature, and the consciousness. And we, we get into these categories that give me a headache. Uh, so what the Bible calls it the flesh. But the flesh is not, it's not referring to this, that the body 
in and of itself. It's referring to the seed of corruption that's in us. We're no longer under its bondage, that's true. We're to live in submission to the Holy Spirit, Galatians 5. And we need to put to death our sinful desires. And just, I can say a lot about the devil here, but we'll just say a few things here. The world, the flesh, and the devil. The devil is the enemy of God who seeks to destroy us in our testimony. And the two big things we have to do is resist him. By the way, that's the dominant way we, we win against the enemy, is to resist him. Uh, be careful of verbose language. I mean, some Christians, I hear them praying all the time, I come up against you. I, I, I kind of sort of get that. I sort of get that, but I think you need to be careful about that. You know, when he comes up against us, he flees. All right, so you got, you, got, you know, watch your language. Of course, the preponderance of teaching in, in, in among the epistles is that you resist him. And, 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 and I say that here, you fight him, but technically, even in Ephesians 6, verses 10 through 18, there's only one offensive weapon that we have, the sword, okay? The armor is there. I, some would say that maybe there's two there in the text, depending on how you look at it, the sword and prayer. But primarily, uh, being who we are defeats the enemy. The best way to defeat the enemy is to be strong in the Lord. The best way of winning a football game is to score more points than he does. And don't let him get past your defense. So, all right. Okay, one or two more questions and, yeah, resist him. Resist him, fight him. Any thoughts or comments? Yeah. I've been thinking about the question you had last week, Paul was tried. Uh, I can't remember exactly how you worded it. You mentioned today that your worry is glorifying God is the, what life is all about. Yeah. Yes. Yes. And, uh, you know, Isaiah says, I give my, my glory to yeah. you, Lord, yeah. my Yeah. 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 You know, uh, what Ken is saying is, you know, it, it, we just have to uh, remember, pride is never passive. Pride is an aggressive affront to who God is. And it's, it's not passive. Okay. Well, let's have a word of prayer in this, Scott. Father, 
we, we thank you for uh, the provision of the cross. We thank you, God, that despite the pervasive nature of sin and, and the depravity that we have experienced and despite how powerful the urges are within us to disobey you and to fulfill the lust and the crap that's inside of us. Hallelujah. Jesus paid it all. And his blood covers, and we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. Thank you that you cleanse us day by day. Thank you for the precious Holy Spirit who comforts us and uh, empowers us and convicts us and transforms us. Lord, we're not without hope and we're not without help. Thank you for one another and thank you for the blessing of community. Strengthen us, O oh God, and help us to work on our stuff so that, Lord, others can see the honor and glory of God reflected in our lives. In Jesus' name. Amen.